0: Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. A few weeks ago, I spoke at a pretty large national retail conference here in the U.S., It was virtual still, and uh, I spoke on refund fraud along with a fairly well-known merchant in uh, the U.S. and other areas of the world, and we only had 30 minutes, so it was a short presentation, but if you've listened to this podcast at all in the last year, you know that this is something that I'm passionate about. I think the first step of prevention is to acknowledge that there's a problem and to understand the problem. It's kind of become the side project of mine, the side passion project, really, to bring awareness to this issue. I've spoken with so many retailers that haven't necessarily understood that there's intention of fraud when these orders are placed, even though they're using their own information and their own payment method. And so it is really challenging, if not impossible for transaction fraud systems to recognize that intention. But it's important that retailers understand this isn't as much of a supply chain issue or a warehouse issue or a customer service issue or a product issue or a carrier issue than a lot of them have thought or is easy to think. That's going to become my mission. We spoke at this conference. I think it went well and we packed as much information as we could in the 30 minutes. And the next day, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal reached out to both of us and was really intrigued by this issue and wanted to write an article about it. So that was a big deal, I think, not just for me and my career at all. I mean, I love that and appreciate that. And as a business owner, it's kind of a big deal to be able to say that I, have been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, but that wasn't my intention or really my motivation in working with this reporter for a week or two on this story. It really was to get that information out there to help people understand this is happening, to primarily help business owners to understand that this is happening. Because as larger companies are starting to recognize this and change some policies and make some changes and adjustments to how they've provided you know, or trusted their customers so long over the years when they say they don't get a product or when they accidentally return something that they didn't actually purchase. Those things have happened for years, but it's been such a small number that I've ever taken advantage of. And now in the last year and a half, it's just exploded. Part of it is that as the larger companies that I'm so lucky to work with are starting to put some things in place to stop this or prevent it or slow it down, smaller businesses are now being impacted too. It's important that people know that this exists. Obviously, there's always a chance that people are going to read an article like this and think, oh, this is a great way to be able to defraud companies. But I'm not as worried about that. And honestly, if we as the merchant you know, fraud prevention community do our jobs, I think that we'll be able to spot those guys. Really fun experience to be able to do that. I think the most important piece to me, too, is that I... Unofficially, felt like a spokesperson for a lot of the retailers that participate in the biweekly collaboration call that I've been hosting since March of 2020. It was cute. A couple of them sent me an email and were like, "Oh, I, you know, noticed that you said this or you mentioned that, and I know you got that from me." and And they were happy because I know a lot of them and a lot of you guys can't speak on the record. I take that part of just. My position in the industry, I guess, and it's not really my job, but this part of my position in the industry seriously and your trust seriously, but also being able to share your stories when I know you would love to is something that I think is important. And I've gotten a lot of really interesting outreach since that article came out from a few companies that are trying to address this problem. I think some are looking at it in a better way than others. I think it's really challenging For solution providers, especially in the fraud prevention space and the transaction prevention space, to be able to try to apply the same logic that they have for stolen credit cards and purchases with stolen credit cards and stolen identity or stolen accounts as they can to refund fraud. It's just a very different animal, and that's intentional on the criminal side a big reason why they've moved to refund fraud away from carding is because this is easier to do and it's harder to spot in fraud transaction systems. I'm having several conversations with different companies, some that I already knew of, others that I didn't, that I think might be on the road for it. And I'm making a decision soon as to advisory board positions, et cetera. But it's something that I want to be very intentional about and pick the right horse, so to speak. I think I've ranted prior that I am frustrated that some companies are putting out press releases that they can solve this, but really all they're doing is suggesting to their customers or their clients, their merchant clients, that they mark customers, you know, uh, ask for a refund when they say that an item doesn't isn't received as fraud or with a little lesser power behind it, but putting it on an internal negative list or watch list. The challenge with that is that a lot of the bulk amount of people who are committing refund fraud are not using the same accounts to do it. So there's not a repeated history. If it was, that would have been so simple. And I would have been saying that for the last year. There's a lot more nuance to it. A lot of these people are being coached by criminals that have really studied merchant systems and so they're suggesting to use fresh accounts or they're suggesting that they use reship addresses which they now provide for a fee and they're clean reship addresses so chances are you haven't had that address in your system before there's just so many nuances and they're also not just claiming INR they're not just claiming inventory not received there's about five different types of refund fraud or five buckets that I've identified. But there's also variations of each of those buckets, so to speak. There's so much more than could be put in that article. And this poor reporter, I gave her so much detail and that's just (laughs) unfortunately a side effect of being a fraud fighter is just caring so deeply about the details. And I understand that in articles for the masses or just anything for the masses, it needs to be more higher level. So I still struggle with what's important and what's not to other people. But on that note, I when I posted the Wall Street Journal ar- article, it came out online on July 13th and then in print on July 14th, which was pretty exciting. First time I've seen my name and company name in a major publication in print. I mean, I've definitely been in you know industry publications, et cetera, online, but it's just different. When I first posted that, I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about creating a workshop for refund fraud to just provide people with almost all the information I have in my head about it all the way from how are the criminals doing it what are they saying how are they organizing how does that whole side work how can you look at some of those postings if you find them and try to understand what they're doing based on their fees or based on the time that they quote or based on the notes and the extra information they provide like Sometimes they say, we can only provide a refund for you if you order less than five items or if it comes in you know less than two boxes or there's different ramifications so you can read between the lines, so to speak. So all the way from that to what it looks like on the merchant side, how you can measure it, how you can actually report on it and at least get a pretty good idea of the size of the impact on your company. And then lastly, but it's certainly not the least important part it might be the most important part several different options for strategies and tactical changes that you can make processes policies some system tweaks depending on what the root issues are that you're seeing right now in your system that can help reduce the impact of refund fraud for you i have worked with over 40 retailers on this over the last year and so i've picked up a lot we've done some trial and error and I also just have a brain for cause and effect and processes and policies. That's why I love chargebacks so much because I see the cause and then I go look for the effect at the beginning and then we change it up. And I've always had a brain for that. I'm going to be offering it in a workshop format. I understand that not every company can hire me privately as a consultant. And I want to be able to make this information more available and affordable for uh, merchants. Now, I do want to say I'm limiting this right now to merchants and merchants of record. Uh, Some payment facilitators, there's one bank that I know isn't trying to create a product about it. They just want to understand it at this bulk price, because I will be helping at least one provider on their product development. I just can't mix the two. And also I want to make this really targeted and specialized to the people on the ground that this is impacting the most. If that's something you're interested in, I am hoping that as of the time of this recording, we'll have the link ready. It's getting really close for registration. So I will put that in the show notes. If for some reason it's not, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's going to be in September over three to four weeks for two hours a week. I think that makes it palatable. It lets you be able to prepare before the holiday season. So anyway, I'm not sure yet if I'm going to limit it or not, but I may also keep doing it. I don't know. I'm kind of seeing how this goes, but I do have the program and the content almost ready. I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you know I give a lot of information away for free on here. I hope you can understand just how much more information I'll give when you're a part of this group or any of the trainings that I'm wanting to work on and offer in the next few months. So that is an opportunity. If you're having this problem, if you want to better understand it, I'm creating this for you. I can only give out so much information on podcasts and other webinars and resources, et cetera. So that will be in there. And I hope also that this is kind of a win for the fraud community. The reporter reached back out to me after the article and said she'd You know, heard from several retailers that were appreciative that she brought this to light and because they'd seen some of the symptoms, but they didn't totally know what was going on or what the cause was. And she left it with, you know, if there's anything else interesting going on in your industry, I'd love to cover it. That made me happy that at least we're starting to get a little bit of interest from outside world or recognition. I just think that that's been missing. I mean, I think a lot of us think, gosh, we see really interesting things. Why doesn't anyone care about it? But again a lot of people that can't talk about it. I'm very fortunate that I can, but I really try hard to represent the people who can't speak on the record and you know, feel much more comfortable speaking on their behalf than my own. I did not mean to talk about that for this long, but thought that I would share a little bit of that and uh, it was fun. I've also been so lucky to get to see a few fraud fighters as they've come into Seattle. One of them uh, was my friend, Jacqueline Hart she was on episode 15. So this was quite a while ago, but she is just such an awesome human and awesome trust and safety warrior. And when she was interviewed here, she was at Patreon. She's now at another company, a very large one. And obviously I know you guys can look it up on LinkedIn, but I'm not saying it here just out of respect for her but she's just such an awesome human and it was so fun to be able to see her in person again the last time I'd seen her was at a merchant meetup that I facilitated and hosted in San Francisco just a few weeks before everything shut down for the pandemic Uh, and she actually helped host it at Patreon so that it was really fun to get to see her and talk fraud there's an awesome camaraderie that comes along with being in this industry. And I think you guys all can relate to that. There's been a few other people that have come into town and that's been fun. And then there's actually going to be a August 2nd through the 4th here in Seattle, Payments Ed, which I have attended for several years pre-pandemic. And I'm fortunate that it's in my city. If you're listening to this and you're going, I think it's probably too late for you to hop on a plane and register now. But if you are going, please let me know. I am really excited to see people face to face. I am vaccinated and ready to mingle. That was so cheesy, but I feel like we all understand and we can can all be awkward together in having people skills again and trying to figure that out (laughs) I'm happy about that actually my friend Holly Sandberg is also coming in to see for that conference and if you guys have not listened to that episode with her which I think was not the last episode but the one before highly recommend it I've received several notes about it people are really fascinated about what type of fraud ticketing companies are seeing And she's just such a wealth of knowledge and information, and I plan on having her back again soon. On the last episode, I talked a lot about some of the things I'm seeing, like reading the tea leaves and just some nervousness I have around cyber criminals attacking the supply chain of fraud prevention, similarly to what we're seeing in cybersecurity, and I received such a kind note from one of our listeners and here's a little like behind the scenes on podcasts. I don't ever know who's listening. I can see how many people uh, listen to an episode and I'm very humbled by that. I can see the countries. I can often see what podcast player you use. So if you're listening to me on iTunes or Spotify or Amazon through the web player that I post on LinkedIn, like however you're listening to it. but that's about it. I don't ever know like specifically who's listening unless you leave a review on iTunes, which I appreciate very much. Or if you write me a note, I definitely have a pretty strong idea of some of my regular listeners, but not all of them. I heard from somebody that I hadn't met before. We'd been connected on LinkedIn for a long time and they really appreciated that last podcast, which was actually really uh, encouraging for me because I don't always feel super confident about these solo podcasts. So anyway, it was nice to hear that he found that information really helpful. And uh, he also asked if I could share the name of the vendor that I mentioned that recently came out with a product that provides the number of days since a phone number has been ported and that is super important for companies that are experiencing sim swap fraud especially financial institutions trading apps anything that has peer to peer payments crypto any of those things where it's not just a little bit of money they can basically get you know access to uh, users' financials high amount, it's worth the effort of doing a SIM swap. And so that's something that I talked about on the last episode. And because there was a cell phone carrier that had a breach and allowed for SIM swap anyways. Go back and listen to that episode for more information on that. But he kind of apologized for asking. And I just wanted to tell you guys like, I have no problem mentioning, especially vendors that I mentioned positively and giving you guys those names privately. I just have made a decision to not really say any company name, whether it's a merchant name, a vendor name, etc. I kind of go by the philosophy that my grandfather had, which is a very simple (laughs) phrase, but has some meaning, Uh, and that is if you ain't said nothing, you ain't said nothing. I figure if I say something great about one vendor, then I'm going to hear from their competitors. Or if I say something not so great about a vendor, I might hear from their lawyers. And definitely, I don't mention merchants that I work with or that tell me things because I don't want to hear from their lawyers and I don't want to lose their trust either. So I just figure if I haven't said anything, I haven't said anything. Obviously, I have had Q6 and Identic on the podcast. They're two companies that I work with as an advisor. But other than that, I just kind of keep things anonymous. It's fun for people to guess, too. So we'll put it there. But additionally, I really appreciated that he shared that the concept I kind of proposed on the last episode as well of rebranding fraud prevention to revenue protection or something similar like that that has a more positive spin to it can really help with your internal PR within your company. I always appreciate when something I say inspires you to make a change in your company or think about something differently. So I certainly am not trying to ask for ego boosts, but it helps me in knowing what uh, types of information I can share uh, or what types of information would be helpful to you for me to talk about. I think I've proved it in the last, what, 34, 35 episodes that I can talk about this stuff a lot, (laughs) but sometimes I need to be pointed in the right direction. It's nice when it's a two-way street and I get a little bit of feedback. I wanted to thank that listener and also just kind of call that out. And if you haven't listened to that episode, maybe that's one that would uh, help you. On the topic of revenue protection. So In reading that email from the merchant who reached out to me after the last episode and also just in some conversations I've been having with merchants recently, it feels like a continual issue that people have. And I certainly had it when I was on the front lines too. Wording it is tough because I don't like saying something like, how to get your leaders to listen to you or how to be viewed as a thought leader in your industry or whatever it is. I think, but I do think that it's a struggle, right? For other areas of the business within e-commerce to understand not just how important fraud prevention or revenue protection is, but also like how integral it is, right? Like from marketing strategies to customer acquisition, what type of customers are you acquiring, who are they, et cetera. Not only would that be helpful information to you, but you could really help give some guidance too, right? Like one of the benefits of all of this technology that we have in the fraud prevention space is really understanding the customer in a level that most other areas of your business don't have visibility into. And if they do, they're looking at it from a marketing lens. They're looking at different attributes. I think that it's really important to first show other areas in the business how helpful you can be to them before you start asking what they can do for you. I think I've said this before, that piece before, but I'm just reiterating it. I think too often we go to it with our needs and what we need, and that's apparent. And as you know, everybody, no matter what piece of the puzzle within your company they are focused on are really busy and they also have to prioritize their time, just like I was mentioning that I'm working on. If you get an email from someone asking you for a favor or asking you to help them or asking you know for X, Y, Z, you're not going to respond to it in the same way as you might get an email that says, hey, I was just thinking that I might have visibility into some areas of the business that you don't. I'd love to hop on a call and just share with you what I'm working on and what I'm seeing and to see if it's helpful to you. That's an email I'm more likely to respond to, right? And then you're building a rapport. And as you're sharing with them the information that you have that might be helpful to them, whether they're in finance or marketing or customer service or business intelligence or cybersecurity or whichever piece of the puzzle you're talking to, You can really angle that and say, okay, here's what we have. Or have I ever showed you the fraud tool that we use and just how much information we're getting through this and the reports I can run? That is an angle to build rapport with other areas of your business. And as they start to understand what you work on, what you have visibility into, why it's important, then you can start to build a relationship. A lot of times when you start to do that, then you start being... Someone that they think of when they're in a meeting about a new marketing strategy and they're like, you might want to bring in the person who's leading revenue protection. I'm just going to start using that now to be able to help us think about this. Maybe there's a different way to word it. Maybe there's a trust and safety aspect to it or a terms and conditions piece that we can help reduce abuse or reduce fraud. Or just protect our customers more, right? I feel like I get this question a lot. Like, how can I become somebody that they go to? Or how can I get people to care about what I'm doing? So I'm going to be, I think I mentioned it when I was interviewing Holly. She's done such a great job at this. I have so many other people. But again, there's not as many merchants who can speak on the record and get the blessing of their PR and legal department. So, you know, whoever can, however, always welcome on this podcast, especially if you're a practitioner, right? If you're on the front lines of fraud prevention, that's Holly's going to share some of her ideas too, but these are just some of the things that I think can be really helpful. Sharing information and being able to be useful to them can be super helpful. How many people in your company actually know the goals and accomplishments of your team or your department? Like how many people know how much you saved last year or the impact of fraud on your company? When I go in and start working with a new client, especially on chargebacks or something around payment fraud, especially if I am presenting to the executives at all, whether it's at the beginning of the presentation or the beginning of the uh, engagement or at the end with a presentation, I often will share the LexisNexis True Cost of Fraud Survey data. I think that it's really important to be able to share with everyone in your company, whether it's executives or other departments, what actually is the impact? Why are you there? And why are you important? If you didn't know this before, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to look for where I wrote this down, but oh, here we go. So in the most recent LexisNexis True Cost of Fraud Survey, they said for every $1 of fraud, Generally, we're talking about chargebacks. So for every $1 that's charged back with a fraud reason code, it costs your company $3.36. So if you had $100,000 worth of fraud last month, that actually was $336,000 worth of fraud to your company. And they're looking at the lost transaction amount plus the lost product or service. They're looking at the cost that you spend on your fraud prevention technology they're looking at the headcount of the people who are managing the chargebacks or the manual review, et cetera. So that's all that goes into that number. It certainly isn't customized for your company. And there's a pretty strong mathematical algorithm that goes into that. So I think it's very trustworthy to be able to say that with authority to your other team members or executives. One thing that I've you know, heard several merchants do that's been really helpful is to create a deck that's kind of a standard deck that is kind of like Fraud 101, but Fraud 101 for within your company. And you can kind of customize a little bit to what each department or executive cares about. So you can customize the numbers. This is what it does to our customer acquisition, right? Like you might be spending X amount on getting a thousand new customers a day, but if 40 of them are bad and they're fraudsters, then that's 3x the amount that everyone else spent right that we're taking away integrating your customer acquisition costs into this and saying well of those 40 customers that were bad not only was it you know $3.36 per dollar but also we lost what you spent to acquire that customer in the first place whether it was to the affiliate or the referral link or google ads or whatever, social media, et cetera. Showing them how it impacts them is really helpful. And having kind of a standard deck that you can then tweak a little bit for each department can be really handy. If a lot of you are working within an office, I would suggest like a lunge and learn. You could still do this virtually for different teams or however it works out. Maybe you start just with reaching out to the leaders of the team and asking for 30 minutes and sharing this deck and then asking if they think it'd be helpful for their teams. There's one merchant in particular who once told me that he felt like 50% of his job was to share with his the rest of his company what he does in the other 50% of his time. Uh, and he worked for a brand that we have all heard of and a brand that really is synonymous with being cutting edge and innovative, but yet He had to spend a lot of his time explaining what he did, but it was so worthwhile because then they realized just how important payments are and fraud and how it really is tied to the lifeblood, the revenue of your company. We know how important our jobs are and that I'm kind of saying that half tongue in cheek, but it it can be challenging for us to share with other people. How important our jobs are because we just speak different languages and we care about different things. And like I said earlier, we care about the details so much, other people don't. And that's something that I still don't totally understand, but that's not how my brain works. Once you've shared with them what you guys do, how you can help them, then you can start to have that relationship for internal collaboration and say, Hey, it'd really be helpful for me to understand when you're launching the biggest sales or what promo codes are out there or to understand what type of data you have for the customer. Like there's been some companies that have been really have had to be scrappy because they've had really low budgets, which it would always surprise people to know which very large brands have the tiniest budgets in this space, but I'll never tell. And I spoke at a conference with one of them who shared and I he had mentioned it to me and I said, I really want you to share that on our panel. And he did that. They worked with their marketing team and realized that they had a lot of technology that they're able to use for fraud prevention. And that was able to cut the cost because the fraud team had very, very little budget, if any at all. There's just a lot of things that working internally can do. Another option is creating some kind of fraud task force, or some companies call it a fraud squad. Obviously, if we are going to be successful in rebranding ourselves to revenue protection, we'll have to find some kind of quippy name for that. I don't know. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. The revenue protection section, I don't know. Who knows? I'm horrible at that. Just roll your eyes at me and let's move on. I'm very used to it. I do have a teenager. Having a group of people who represent various areas of the business can be super helpful in making decisions about fraud, as well as just other people understanding, oh, all of these pieces do fit together. We shouldn't be in such of a silo. The most successful people in fraud prevention that I know, and also coincidentally, the ones who often get the approval and sign off from their executives and PR and legal to speak at conferences are the ones who do a really good job of explaining within their company how important they are and how good they are at their jobs that the company wants to kind of brag about them right and say our head of trust and safety or our head of fraud prevention speaks at national conferences because that's how good they are and that's how good we are and that's how good we are at protecting our customers that can take a long while, and they will all tell you that it's taken a long while to do that. But these are the steps that you have to take in order to do that, right? We can't just cram it down their throats and say, you need to understand how important we are. Uh, You can try, but I don't think that's as successful as, you know, building relationships and showing how valuable you can be. And then having some kind of a task force, this has been super helpful, especially to some of the quick service restaurants that had never been in card not present fraud until... A few years ago when mobile apps were uh, became a thing and paying for fast food and quick service restaurants through an app became very normal. And once those transactions stopped being in store and online, these companies started getting a massive amount of chargebacks. And so it really was kind of like a pull the fire alarm moment for a lot of them. And they started these fraud task force and it's been extremely beneficial to them. To have at least one representative from customer service, from finance, from IT, from InfoSec, from business intelligence, from the executive side, marketing and sales, I'm probably missing a department or two, but you know which ones are kind of adjacent and would be helpful. And getting those other perspectives have been very valuable to those companies. Uh, I asked one of them in particular to speak at a CardNet present conference two years ago, and they really were able to share a lot about how this fraud squad or fraud task force within their company has really changed the perspective of fraud within the company. And it's helped them in numerous ways from getting an increased budget, to, you know, speaking at conferences, like I said, and just all kinds of things. And I'm not meaning to sugarcoat and make this sound easy at all, but I do think that it's worth it. Like everything, right? It's going to take time. It's going to take patience. It's going to take a little bit of persistence, but showing up and saying, how can I help you versus I want you to help me is the first step. Then showing them how you can help and then working together, getting their input. And then also, like I said, they'll start Recognizing, oh wait, this is weird. I wonder if like marketing maybe looking at their Google Analytics and be like, huh, why is this really random affiliate their traffic has spiked so much? And instead of being super excited about it, they might go over to you and say, hey, would you mind just checking out the orders that come through this affiliate because they spiked so quickly? And and it, I hope it's good, but it could be suspicious. Uh, and then you're able to really demonstrate your value, right? Another thing that I think is important or another method or way of doing this um, that is equally just as important as these, and you can kind of do all of them in different ways, is to align your team goals with your company goals. Some companies, some tech companies require this already. So they'll set company goals and then every the line of management underneath them kind of has to spell out what that means for them. So sales and marketing might say okay, we have a big company goal of acquiring however number of customers we want or growing our accounts by this, okay, here's how we're going to break that down and do it. And then marketing's going to have something, you know, else or sales and then marketing and them all the different areas, right? Finance is going to look at conserving money or looking at how they're measuring that. I think it's important for fraud and payments to really align themselves with the company goals. If your company's goal is to grow it by accounts and not only revenue, maybe you have to not put as much friction on sign up as you do at checkout. Maybe you tweak this or that, right? Or maybe you invest in behavior biometrics at login or at uh time of sign up to be able to have kind of the seamless and frictionless Intel. And then when they start acting on their account, whether it's placing orders or interacting with people or uploading content or whatever that account enables them to do at your company, then you can put some pressure on, right? Um, Another example is top-line revenue really is a big goal. Then you can really look at your insult rate right, and really try to fine-tune that. Maybe you bring on an order recovery company. There's one or two within physical goods. Actually, there's one really within physical goods that I highly recommend that, I mean, in one case helped a merchant have... (laughs) They have a fraud technology that they use, but the ROI on top of it was 3000% to hire an order recovery company. They recognized that about 91% of the orders that their fraud prevention company was canceling wouldn't have actually turned into chargebacks through an analysis. That's maybe something you can do, right? And then not only align with the goals, but then report up, right? How are you aligning with those goals? Hey, by refining our insult rate by refining the orders that we're canceling that may not actually turn into fraud, we have increased top line revenue by X or we are responding to chargebacks in a new way or we hired a better vendor or whatever it was and we have increased our bottom line revenue. We've recovered this much more revenue. Being able to report those big numbers to help add to the bigger company goal shows how important you and your team are to your company it's just another way to demonstrate your value in a very tangible way because those top company goals are kind of what executives wake up thinking about every single morning so if you're showing that you're and oftentimes fraud isn't really looped into those it's just kind of like an ancillary thing like an ancillary department but i think it's important to you know align yourself with them and if you're a public company, those goals are probably in a shareholder meeting somewhere in notes. If you're private, you can talk to your uh, boss. I mean, you can always talk to your management about that also, but these are just some of the core ways that I've recognized when speaking with merchants, what has really worked for the ones that do such a good job at this and the ones whose CEOs say, hey, that's a really good idea, blah, blah, blah team. Let's get the head of revenue protection or fraud prevention in on this or trust and safety in on this just to make sure that we're you know not bringing in, we're not attracting more abuse into the system or let's just make sure. And then the last one that I would say is try not to always say no in a meeting. This is something I share from experience. And I think I have shared this on a previous podcast episode, but I couldn't tell you if it was on my last podcast or this podcast or what episode. When I first managed a fraud team. It was for a startup. And I took my job as gatekeeper so seriously, as, you know, we should, right? I was so mono-focused on my goals of, you know, reducing chargebacks and reducing fraud that I didn't always see the importance of adding new business. There were, I was invited to a lot of executive meetings at first, But then I just always say no. And I mean, let's be fair. Some of these ideas were really, really bad. I mean, this was back in 2009. And our CMO thought that it was a genius idea to sell our customers credit card numbers for magazine subscriptions. You know, there wasn't really like an API. I don't know if there were APIs back then. But if so, they were pretty rudimentary. And because of tokenization. Anyway, we would have like had to kind of go outside of PCI compliance to do it as well as piss off our customers, right? Like in the short term, that might be great because you're getting a high percentage of revenue from these magazine companies or publishers and you're not really doing anything. But then when you really think about it, it's like, well, our customers are gonna be pissed and they might issue chargebacks to us and to them. And you just kind of break it down. And you're like, this is a really dumb idea, but I shouldn't have just said no so fast because as I would say no to ideas, I would just stop getting invited to meetings. And then I'd find out about huge sales or crazy ideas that that CMO had. At the same time, our customers would. And I wouldn't be able to staff up my team. And I wouldn't be able to say, hey, can we just rephrase this and this? Like, instead of having 50% off your whole order, can we have 50% off one item? Or can we do this or that? So that it doesn't attract so much bad behavior. And it really varies based on your company as to what works or doesn't work for that. So that was just one random idea and one random example. Being able to say yes, but or yes, and maybe it's more like the improv approach of, uh, yeah, I think we can do that. And would it be possible to be able to have this or this in place or would it be possible to consider multi-factor authentication is I think that that's going, if we put this change in place, it may encourage cyber criminals to commit account takeover because they're going to want the stored value in that person's account. If you're giving out gift cards, right? Like if it's by $100 of X and you get a $10 uh, gift card, People are gonna learn, they're gonna figure out how to stack those, right? Like another good example, and this came up on the retailer call a few weeks ago. There's a few retailers that are starting to see what they call CSAT or customer satisfaction. I think I actually mentioned this on the last episode now, but that I think about it, but customer satisfaction promo codes. And they are starting to see these being taken out of customer accounts through account takeover and then like put all together. Mm-hmm. And stacked uh, for fraud orders, and I'm seeing on Telegram a lot of these gift card amounts or promo amounts—they're pretty high dollar being sold for Bitcoin to people. So they might say there's a hundred and fifty dollar. Uh, reward stored on an account that we can transfer to you for $30 in Bitcoin, depending on the company and the supply and all that. In this case, the merchants went to their leadership and said, hey, I totally get why customer satisfaction credits are important, but can we, here's how they're being used and here's what's happening with them. Is it possible for us to limit one per purchase? And actually, I think all of their business leaders were like, oh, yeah, then that's actually better for us, right? So if one account does have two customer satisfaction credits, which is very rare, but if they do, they have to have two separate purchases. But again, that's super rare, right? In good scenarios. Now, another thing would be for the fraud team to be able to put in some kind of logic, depending on their system, to say when there's more than one promo or rewards over X amount that get flagged. It's not completely fraud, but chances are if you were to go back to the original source, the original account that received that customer satisfaction promo or reward amount, you would see that it was transferred out of their account. So I'm not just saying you should flag this to look for the abuse, but also to look for the account takeover and to be able to make those customers whole which then will reduce customer service calls. So now you're able to add another benefit for your executives, right? I'm not just stopping fraud. I'm also helping reduce our customer service calls because the customers whose accounts are being stolen from aren't going to be calling in. I'm also helping with customer trust and that's less. you're less likely to get those horrible social media posts if we preemptively fix this ahead of time. We proactively do it. Or maybe we need to put a system in to be able to identify and prevent account takeover from happening in the first place. Like that would actually be ideal. These are all things I've had to learn as a consultant to how to not just look at the dollar amount that you're saving a company, right? But what are the other benefits? Are you putting something in place that's going to reduce the incoming volume of calls and customer service? Are you making a change that's going to help increase customer trust and make them feel safe? That is a brand issue and your brand reputation is very important. And that is something your marketing team cares about very much as well as communications. So those are some of the things, not just saying we can save X or we have saved you X, but what are the other ancillary and, and tangible benefits throughout your company when you stop looking at the silo of what your task is and what are you saving for your company? What, How are you benefiting them? How can you benefit them if you implement this change that you're trying to propose? These are things I've had to learn as a consultant, especially when speaking with executives, because unfortunately, as much as we want everyone to care about the money or the security aspect or whatever it is, They've got 800 different priorities. They're thinking about other things. And we all know that if the marketing team or the sales team, and I guess I'm picking on them a little bit, but any of the companies that add revenue to the company, if they were to bring in $10 million this year, they would probably be rewarded and it would be a big thing. I mean, depending on the size of your company, obviously 10 million may not be that much or it may be like your whole annual and you're like, oh, we're not going to double it, but go with me here. So but if you, as the fraud team, were able to save $10 million by preventing fraudulent orders, by reducing your false positives and, and getting a lot better at um, identifying those specific fraud orders and not just the risky behavior that could be maybe uh, fraud. Lastly, if you are you're responding to your chargebacks and you're getting all that money back and you, bring, you save the company $10 million, it's not going to be the same ticker tape parade. But it is important to track that. It's important to share it in a humble way and to also just express like how this benefits the company outside of the financial. Those are all some things that I have had to learn over the last several years. And when I look back on when I was a manager and just said no to a lot of things. And like I said, there are several that I still would say no to, but I'd say no in a different way. And I would help my company understand my value beyond just being security guard for our checkout, basically. So anyway... Those are my thoughts on collaborating internally and how to be seen as the thought leader that you are within your company. I hope that that is helpful for you guys. I would love to hear if it was or if there was something that I didn't touch on that you wish I did. If there's ever a topic that you really wish I would deep dive into or have a guest that talks about that topic, please let me know. Also, like I mentioned a little bit ago, if you are a merchant or practitioner and you are able to speak on the podcast, I would love to have you. It's a great way to highlight smart people in our industry. And actually fun fact, almost every merchant I've interviewed for this podcast, all but maybe two started new jobs within like a month or two after being on my podcast. So it is some good exposure for you as well. And and some of that was already in the works before the interview. So I'm not going to Claim it for all of them, and also I hope that's not everyone's goal, but it is an interesting observation that I have made in looking at who I've interviewed over the last year. With that, I am going to get going. I, like all of you, have so much to do in the space of fighting fraud, but I really appreciate the time that you take to listen to this podcast weekly and also, when I get notes from you and see ratings and reviews, I just really appreciate it. It feels more like a two-way street and it reminds me why I do this in the first place. So with that, I will talk to you next week.